and welcome to episode six of the actual astronomy podcast. I'm Chris, and with me, as always, is Shane. How's it going this week, Shane? It's going good. You know, uh-huh. I uh, I figured out something. Oh yeah. Not to have a handful of peanuts before we start one of these things, so I don't start choking as I, I begin talking, which I think happened for the first two or three podcasts that we did together. Well, you are going a bit nuts, probably staying sequestered in your home for this length of time. Yes, that is very true. No, <laughs> no stretch at all. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. So, um, and a bit of a caveat. So we are recording like in our homes, although I have my own office. Is Are you in your own home office? Is that like a home office that you're in? Yeah, yeah. We have a, we have a spare bedroom in the basement that is kind of a home office slash telescope storage room. And mm-hmm. uh, there's all, all sorts of odds and ends in here. Hmm. Well, my spouse and I, we each have our own home offices. In fact, when I, when I moved to Saskatchewan, as you know, I kept my job and, and worked here remotely uh, for a company in Ontario for three years. I was in this office and then have sort of um, gone back to that uh, during, during this time. But uh, I'm on the second floor of my home and I live in a residential uh, area, which is moderately uh, condensed with people, although like you can go up for a walk these days and not run into anybody, but it's a, it's a neighborhood very similar to yours. And currently, across the street, a gentleman is building a very large wooden box in his driveway. <laughs> so you're gonna hear, uh, I was hearing some pounding towards the, the end of the, um, the last episode, we kind of do two back to back, and then I, I had to go and take a peek out in between uh, when we take our break, and I and I looked out, and he has got uh, probably about a meter um, by maybe a meter and a half high uh, wooden box under construction. He is he is wearing his mask because he's outside, but he's also doing a lot of sanding, so uh, it was uh. indeterminate if the mask was for uh, coronavirus protection or or for the sanding. So uh, yeah, so so that's happening as well. So I, I don't have a mask yet. How about, how about you? I'm not wearing one. Uh, I, you know, I have some in the garage that I've bought in the past, you know, for similar purposes as your, your neighbor across the street to, you know, put on when I'm doing some woodwork or sanding in the garage. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's really all I have. Yeah. I, I'm not much for like putting something over my face. That's just yeah, so you know we're not going to be going out in public. I think it's probably okay if we just go walk around the streets. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to be going out anywhere anytime soon. Like if we if we still have to wear masks, I, I think I'm just staying home for that period of time. So. Well, and, and you and I both wear glasses, and you know wearing one of those masks sometimes is just a headache with glasses because your glasses fog up because you know the air you're exhaling sometimes gets channeled upwards. And oh yeah, and drives me crazy. I, I have so much trouble not touching my face anyway that I, I know if I'm wearing one of those, I'm just going to be hands on face 24 seven. And so it's going to be far worse for me to have one of those on. Um, absolutely for sure. hundred percent. I just could not stand to have that on my face. So that's actually probably my, one of my greatest concerns about this whole uh, pandemic thing is, is actually having to wear a mask because I just don't want to do that. Well, so, and I'd also have to shave my beard. And if oh, I did that's that, right. I don't, I don't know if my wife would even recognize me anymore. So I, I would risky. recognize <laughs> you at this point. So this week we're going to do uh, what? What are we talking about this week? Uh, we are talking about, um, I believe, some, is it, is it the episode where we talk about what's in the sky? 
no, yeah, no. We're gonna we're gonna do a bit of an orientation of the night. Right, school. right. Sorry, yeah. I was thinking the the spring what's up, but that'll probably be the next one. No, yeah, that will be that will be the next one or the the one after or something like that. This we're all, we're keeping this fairly informal. We we did this before, like we said at the very first podcast, and we put a lot of work into it, and a lot of that work seemed to be um, not necessary. <laughs> so we're not doing that this time. Yeah. All right. So this one, we're going to talk about a bit of an introduction to, to the universe. I'm going to, I'm going to go over the entire universe here in about five minutes um, <laughs> and then uh, talk about some of the stuff that's in it or everything that's in it, actually. Um, that will be the next five minutes and then, you know, we'll be done. So, oh, wow. Whirlwind. so yeah, I mean, one of the things, uh, you know, the universe as, as we see it from earth. So if we started at earth and we slowly kind of zoom out, we, we have the earth and we have the solar system. And at, and at this time, I think, uh, and you'll recall this, like we've done public outreach events where we do that solar system on the toilet paper, right? Yes. Yes. Don't, don't you regret not saving some of that toilet paper at this time? <laughs> sort of to, to, to reference back oh, to yes, the, yeah. the old Good, very topical it's yeah very very yeah. topical <laughs> or or maybe having having not having not toilet papered one one or two more houses in our youth okay so we have we have the earth the earth is in the solar system and, and most people are familiar with this so inside the solar system uh, this is like basically our backyard. We've sent probes throughout the solar system. Now it's visited all of the probes have visited all the planets and our planets are um, coming out from the sun. Uh, and the sun is, so you're actually more of a solar observer than I am. So maybe we'll start at the center of our solar system at the sun. And I will get you to describe what the sun is exactly since you look at it a lot more than I do. Yeah, I like to look at it uh, typically with a hydrogen alpha filter. So you can see some of the surface detail and some of the prominence is coming off uh, off of the sun. But uh, what what the sun is, is the closest star to Earth, um, which I think sometimes when people are thinking about the closest star, they're thinking of Alpha Centauri or, uh, you know, stars that you see in the night sky. But the sun is uh, is the closest. And, and what's very interesting about the sun is it's a very common star kind of, uh, you know, it, it's not early in life, it's not end in life, or sorry, towards the end of its life. Uh, it's, it's what a lot of the stars, <clears throat> excuse me, in the entire universe uh, look like. So for our ability to study something so close to us, gain an understanding, and then apply that knowledge to a lot of those other common stars in the universe is, uh, is very helpful for science. And I think it's just a really neat, um, kind of op opportunity or option for us uh, here on earth uh, to, to learn about stars and kind of see how they work. Uh, it's basically a giant uh, like kind of nuclear reactor uh, producing energy and heat and, and burning obscene amounts of uh, matter away um, to arise part of its process to function. Um, so, so what, is, I don't know. what does it look like? So when, you, when you're looking at it through the hydrogen, uh, what it, it's hydrogen alpha, correct? Yes, yes. And and I've looked through the I've looked through your scope, which is a brilliant scope. Um, what what is your telescope first of all, and what does the sun look like through it exactly? Like what kind of features can you see exactly through? Okay, okay. So the uh, the hydrogen alpha that I have is uh, is made by Lunt L U N T, uh, and it's a thirty five millimeter telescope. So it's very small in terms of aperture, but because the sun is so bright, 
and so close, uh, you really, you know, you don't necessarily need large aperture uh, for it. Uh, but when you're looking through one of these hydrogen alpha telescopes, um, they're, they're a very specialized filter inside that only allows the, uh, a very narrow wavelength of light to pass through, which is the hydrogen alpha uh, wavelength. And when you're looking at it, the first thing you'll notice is the sun appears kind of reddish. Um, and that's just because of the light that is allowed to pass. Um, now, what you'll be able to look at or, or discern on the sun is uh, a whole bunch of different features, but what, what usually catches the eye, so along the edge of the sun, uh, you'll see what, what is known as prominences. And these prominences are the sun kind of ejecting matter into, uh, I guess it doesn't really have an atmosphere, I don't believe, but off, off the surface of the sun. So they kind of looks like, well, they, they come in various shapes, sizes, uh, and structures, but they kind of look like little flamey fingers sometimes. Um, now, what is also interesting about these things is they evolve over short periods of time. So if you're observing the sun, say, throughout the course of a Saturday, um, what, what you see in the morning may look different in the afternoon. And that's kind of fascinating because a lot of the stuff that we look at through our telescopes really doesn't change over time um, because of the scale of the universe. We, we really don't live long enough to see some of these changes. Oh. So yeah, it's kind of a neat thing. Yeah. So moving, moving out from the sun, we have uh, the set of now nine planets. Of course, when, when we were much younger, it was, it was the, uh, you know, the, well, we have eight planets, then we have a bunch of dwarf planets now, uh, Pluto having been uh, demoted to uh, dwarf planet status a number of years ago. Um, so we have the interior planets, the terrestrial planets of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And then we have the gas giant planets of uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Make, make sure I get those correct, eh? <laughs> <laughs> off the top of my head um and you know this really forms our our solar system and and the the part about this is that we've only really just explored the solar system as far as the uh probes go like we've sent out uh probes to to all of these planets and, and including pluto now and i think on its way to some uh, kuiper belt objects um but this is really very much um within our our neighborhood our, our solar system neighborhood. But going out one step, you kind of referenced this uh, a little bit when you were talking about the sun. Um, we talk about our interstellar uh, region, and that includes like the nearby stars, which includes um, Alpha Centauri and Proxima Centauri and Barnard Star and a bunch of other stars uh, like that. Um, and those stars are very close to us. Now, some of them are quite bright, um, and you can see like, uh, like those of the, the Alpha Centauri system, um, but uh, many of them are faint and uh, it just has to, has to do with how bright the stars are uh, intrinsically. And all of the stars and, and that we're looking at up there uh, that you're gonna see in the nighttime sky, uh, these are all part of the Milky Way galaxy. So we have, um, and many uh, other planetary systems have been discovered around stars, but all of those and all of those stars that you look up at the nighttime sky, even from a very dark site, these are all going to be in the Milky Way. Anything to add on that, Shane? Um, if you were to put some of the scale into context, um, 
you know, so you, you started with the earth, talked about the solar system, the interstellar neighborhood and in the Milky Way. Um, you know, how big is that? You know, what, what, what kind of scale are we looking at here? So the whole Milky Way, I think it's like, uh, you know, boy, like something like 100, 120,000 light years across or something like that. So it, it is so huge um, that we use these, uh, these numbers called uh, astronomical units. And an astronomical unit, I think, is like 93 million miles or whatever it is. It's the distance from the Earth to the sun. And so if, if the Milky Way galaxy is, you know, like 120,000 astronomical units across, like, I mean, that is just this massive, massive distance um, out there in space. But, the, you know, you can kind of get lost in those numbers. And, and I mean, I, I could even do that off by, by a scale. And the numbers actually aren't even uh, so well known. I mean, they, they certainly have have pinpointed them down but every once in a while you hear like that will that will change like pretty significantly so i could be could be remembering old data from my youth and sure. things certainly things change but um the one thing i want to mention and, and reiterate is that all of the stars that, that you will see even through uh a backyard telescope with which the which has one exception here in a moment we'll talk about um are in our milky way galaxy this is our home uh you know, what, what Emmanuel Kant referred to as our home island universe, um, which are all the nebulas and star clusters and all that kind of stuff. Basically, it's, it's more or less the realm of, of the backyard astronomer, uh, with the exception of uh, other galaxies, and in particular, our local group of galaxies, of which one is uh, rather bright and prominent, and that is the Andromeda galaxy. And there's some other galaxies up there like M33 and a few uh, dwarf galaxies, but these are their own sort of uh, areas in space with their own stars and nebulas and clusters and, and everything all on their own. And as, as mentioned, when they look up into their night sky, if there's, if there's beings uh, in those galaxies, you know, the stars that they would see in turn would, would only be the stars uh, in, their, uh, in their galaxies. Now, if you were uh, in in our Milky Way galaxy, you looked up now, the stars might be in different spots, but we might be looking at the same stars as, as other beings. And if you're on the other side of the Milky Way, you might be uh, looking at uh, completely different stars, uh, of course, in the nighttime sky. And then um, as well, like the patterns, of course, will change just depending on your, your perspective from your own point in the universe. But one night, you and I actually looked at stars in a different galaxy. Uh, you had your uh, 12 inch telescope down in the grasslands. We had a really good night and you actually hunted up, I remember a globular cluster um, and some other objects in the Andromeda galaxy. Do you remember that night? Yeah, yeah, that was a phenomenal night. Well, you know, uh, grasslands itself is a phenomenal place to observe. And uh, we had a, a night of outstanding conditions and decided to put the 12 inch uh, telescope on Andromeda with some really high power to see if we could pull out some of the brighter clusters. I think the bright one is, is like uh, the catalog annotation is something like G32 or something like something that. Like or, that. Yeah, 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 I can't remember. So you, don't- You had like the whole book on it there. I remember you, you found like a book somewhere in like an old library or something like that. And Yeah, yeah, it's an atlas for yeah. the objects within Andromeda that, um, you know, or some of them are reachable or viewable just with the naked eye with, large aperture optics. I don't believe our little refractors, even our big refractors, you know, our five inches would, would be able to resolve anything there. Um, you really do need some, some heavy duty telescope to be able to pull that stuff in or get into some astrophotography to really start to, you know, pull that, pull that light in. 
Yeah. But outside, outside of that, I mean, really, there's not much we can see um, in, other, in other galaxies. You might see some star forming regions uh, and that kind of stuff, but uh, they're going to be, you know, really small and, and require a, a fairly substantial uh, telescope to take a look at. But outside of this local group, we're going to get into the Virgo supercluster, and that's kind of where you get into things like Markarian's chain, which is a big um, group of galaxies up, up in the constellation Virgo. And you and I actually, we, we've looked at that a few nights. You can see that in a small telescope. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the Virgo supercluster is probably one of the most humbling uh, observations that I've had at the eyepiece. Um, so, you know, as you carry on here with your tour through the universe, um, it, 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 it's almost impossible to comprehend how big everything is in the universe and, and the distance and, and the scale of all of this stuff. When we're talking about, and you mentioned already, uh, what is observable in our night sky, we're just seeing things basically within the Milky Way. There's a few exceptions, like what you've talked about with some other galaxies that we can see with telescopes. But for the most part, everything you see is just our one galaxy. And we can't even see all of that. We're really kind of just seeing the one half that we live in. Now, when you extrapolate that there are, you know, millions or who knows how many galaxies in the universe, it just, it blows my mind. And then when you're looking at some fields uh, within that Virgo supercluster, and you can have five, six, seven, eight, nine galaxies in one field of view and when you start to think about how many stars are in each one of these uh, galaxies and then the likely uh, you know there's for sure solar systems that exist there and then potential for life it just is extremely humbling and and mm. you know i i always enjoy looking at the virgo supercluster uh, and just kind of panning through that area of the sky and and this is the right time of the year for it too because uh, yeah. it's uh you know it's kind of a spring object or spring uh uh, yeah, thing to look at. Yeah, spring area in the sky. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Moving moving out from the Virgo supercluster, we have all of the groups of local superclusters. And I think there is a Corona Borealis cluster up there, and a Hercules cluster, and a bunch of other ones like that. I, I think maybe I've looked at one or two of the of the other ones through through large telescopes. But uh, but this really gets into the realm of um, you know really big amateur telescopes or Hubble type images or large mountain top observatory. Uh, type images. And then moving out from there, we have like, you know, of course, the whole context uh, of the entire universe. But one of the neat things to think about is that, um, especially like when you're looking through like a, like a medium-sized amateur telescope, like a five-inch refractor or a 12-inch uh, reflector, is that when you see another galaxy, you look at it edge on, and then you can kind of think about our Milky Way from inside our Milky Way, we're looking at it. And so when we look up into the summertime sky, and we can see that bright, fluffy band of star clouds and basically the, the aggregate light from other clusters and nebulas and star from your regions and all this kind of coming together. Um, if you kind of think about that in terms of an edge-on galaxy, then, then go and maybe look at an edge-on galaxy, you can see that you know around like that uh, Ophiuchus, Scorpius region, we have a central bulge and then kind of sort of tapers off and there's this big dark lane that kind of runs right down the middle. So I always like to show, and I think you can see this image anywhere, had this little galaxy and it gets NGC 891 up in, uh, up in Andromeda. And then I have like that, one of those mosaics that somebody has traveled all over the world and created um, that show like that sort of band of, of the Milky Way. And I know you and I have spent a long time 
uh, taking a look at that. You've even taken some photos of it yourself. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I enjoy the wide field um, photography of the Milky Way, particularly in the summertime. Uh, there's so much structure uh, that a camera pulls in. Well, even your eye, um, it, you know, it's, it's quite neat. Um, and another edge on Galaxy that I love, again, this time of the year, is uh, M104 or Messier 104 or NGC 4594. Otherwise known as the Sombrero Galaxy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all, all of these things have multiple names and, and gal or uh, catalog annotations. But it's an edge on that is uh, very bright. And again, through that 12-inch telescope that I uh, used to have, um, you can see that dark lane quite nicely in there. And it almost takes on a three-dimensional view through the telescope. It's quite stunning. Yeah. And it's neat, like with, with that telescope, it's neat to look at other galaxies. And then with our own like smaller telescopes or eye or binoculars, uh, what have you, um, you know, we can look at our Milky Way and see uh, clusters and nebulae in our Milky Way that, uh, that appear, although faint, um, you can see quite a bit of detail and way more detail um, than, than even the largest telescopes can see in other galaxies. So it's really neat that that we have our own Milky Way as, as an example of something for us to explore um, with these small instruments, eh? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So um, what is, uh, what are some of the things that we can look at? We can look at clusters, nebulas, and galaxies. And so what these are exactly is these are what we call deep sky objects or DSOs. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. Uh, I'm one of the uh, contributing authors to the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's Observer's Handbook. And a number of years ago, um, I, I had, you know, been writing articles for a few years at that point, and they came to me and said, well, what is a deep sky object? <laughs> you know, like, this this does not appear uh, so much in any kind of dictionary or anything like that of astronomical objects. So we kind of sort of sat around and kind of looked at a bunch of different things and we came up uh, with, with some loose definitions and that. But essentially what these are is these are the uh, nebulas and star clusters and galaxies. Um, and for the most part, um, the nebulas, clusters, and, gal and galaxies that, that we're going to look at through uh, amateur equipment or what we call deep sky objects. And uh, the shallow sky being, you know, if you can refer to it as that, as the solar system objects like the planets and um, comets and asteroids that, that we see in our own uh, uh, celestial backyard of the solar system. So uh, in the winter sky, which is just leaving now, we have a lot of really great uh, open clusters. There's, there's a few in the spring sky in, and really the, the hallmark nebula is the Orion Nebula or M42 in Orion. Um, and then one of the hallmark uh, really prominent uh, open clusters is, is the Pleiades uh, up in Taurus. Um, both of these are kind of getting, getting towards the horizon now, if not on the horizon by the time we get this podcast out. But in the springtime sky, we have the, the Beehive Cluster, we have the uh, Coma Berenices Cluster, and then we have all those uh, galaxies in, in the Virgo Cluster, Supercluster that we talked about uh, earlier. And then, of course, if you stay up uh, late enough in the springtime sky, we can see our own Milky Way galaxy. But there are two types of globular uh, sorry, two types of clusters. Um, Shane, what are our two types of clusters? Well, you already let the cat out of the bag, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so you are well, just just winging it here. <laughs> so uh, one type is globular, um, and as the name kind of suggests, it's a glob of stars 
Uh, I, I think the origin, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of globular clusters are kind of roundish and look like a globe of sorts. Yeah, and, kind of like uh, a little a disco ball of sorts, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the other format or the other category is, is open star clusters. And these are kind of... They're they're in the they're all in a galactic neighborhood um, and and have gravitational influences on each other, but they're not really in any uniform uh, uh, structure or shape. Uh, they can be dispersed. They can be, you know, extremely wide. They can be compact. They're they're kind of wild cards. Yeah, and and there's a couple of things that uh, I always like to think about when I when I think about these, um, and that's that the globular clusters uh, tend to contain really old stars. They can tend to contain really bright red stars, um, and they're located in a halo around our galaxy, and they're no longer forming in our galaxy of the Milky Way, um, and they're sort of just they're not on that um, Milky Way band so much. They're just off of the band of the Milky Way typically. There, there's a few exceptions, but um, for the most part, um, they're halo objects. And even when we see them sort of uh, superimposed on that on that band, it's just our line of sight that, that's really doing that. Whereas the open clusters, um, they dominate our, our Milky Way band um, and they contain only hundreds, not tens of thousands of stars like the globulars do. Uh, they're a regular shape and most of the time they're kind of coming apart and they're kind of, their constituent stars are going to sort of go and, uh, and drift around the, uh, the galaxy there. So um, we talked about the Orion Nebula. The Orion Nebula is a star forming region in the constellation Orion. So kind of once you become familiar with the nighttime sky, you find the belt of Orion right below the belt of Orion. Um, there's a long uh, set of stars, and one of those stars in that middle of set is, is the Orion Nebula. Um, it's a star-forming region, and it's forming uh, a pile of stars. They're going to, you know, gradually they're being formed into a bit of a cluster there. Part of that is the trapezium cluster, and eventually the, the nebula will more or less shut down its star-forming process, and then these stars will kind of drift out uh, in and amongst the, the other stars of, of our Milky Way. We have other types of nebulae though. Uh, one of them is the uh, M1 nebula. So do you want to talk a little bit about M1? I think you've probably looked at it more than I have. You know, M1, I, I have looked at a few times, but to be honest, that one, I don't look at a lot. Um, uh, and I don't know why. Uh, I just don't go to that part of the sky, I guess, enough. But M1 is a... Uh, uh, the Crab Nebula, and I believe that this is a star that went supernova. Was it 1000 BC? Something, yeah, like just over yeah. 1000 BC, something like that. Oh, yeah. sorry, 80. 80, right? And what's very interesting about that is there's a number of recorded observations of this when that star went supernova that people would see it during the daylight. It was so bright, um, and now we're just seeing the effects of that supernova. Uh, and, and so a supernova is when a star reaches a certain age that it essentially explodes or it sheds a lot of its matter off into space. And what happens sometimes is we're left with uh, a nebula, uh, this gas that's illuminated and takes on some really interesting structures and sometimes colors. Um, and, you know, as far as the, again, the scale of the universe going back a thousand years is about as recent as it gets. So it's kind of neat to be able to watch this thing, um, as it changes and evolves. Yeah. And I think that, like even with the Hubble and some other large telescopes, they've, um, done like time lapse, uh, sequences where you can even see like the pulsations, pulsations from the pulsar, which is 
the uh, stellar remnant from from that supernova over about a thousand years ago now anyway yeah and we talked about the the andromeda galaxy which uh is is about the brightest galaxy that we can we can see outside of our own Milky Way galaxy and you can find that by by running a line between andromeda and the uh, w of uh, cassiopeia um but we've talked enough about that but how do you go about finding uh, all of these nebulas uh star clusters and other galaxies you know um, the one thing that that I learned very early on is to use my fist and you can do this by holding your fist out at arm's length and the size of your fist held out at arm's length is approximately what we call 10 degrees on the nighttime sky and we can actually use this to kind of kind of sort of plot our, our path through the stars so um, for example one of the things that, that we can do is find uh, Polaris and you can use your fist and Polaris uh, is the North Star. And the North Star is the, uh, the star that sits approximately over our North Pole and the entire sky seems to rotate around it because our celestial, our polar axis from the Earth seems to project up through uh, the celestial sphere and right through our very near Polaris. Um, so all the stars seem to rotate around it. So Polaris as a star doesn't doesn't move in relation to the other stars everything uh, moves around it and to find it all one needs to do is to locate the uh the big dipper asterism as part of the ursa major constellation and you can go out of the bowl three fists or, or about 30 degrees the fist being 10 degrees held up at arm's length uh and that will actually land you uh on polaris and then one of the other things is that with the with the uh, with the fist being ten degrees, you can kind of subtend down from that to kind of get a smaller uh, figures. Like half a fist would be five degrees, and a finger would be about uh, like your index finger would be about a degree or so. And then you can kind of use that to navigate around. Now, if you read other things, they'll say like use like these weird and different hand signals. But I can never remember all those hand signals. I don't know about you, Shane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me me either. So I I stick with the ten degrees and. And the one degree with the finger, um, and that's good enough to get me into the ballpark or the, you know the the neighborhood or the area yeah. of the sky that I want to be in, and then I can you know just use my eyes to find what I'm looking for. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, really, like, how often are you going to trace out uh, a pattern much larger than a few fists? Um, well, considering that from uh, the horizon to overhead would only be nine fists, and and one would never do that. Um, really that's, that's not much of a, of a stretch and typically you're doing maybe a couple fists or so, um, as far as a measurement goes. So, uh, one, one other interesting little fist thing is if you, if you hold out your fist or kind of the width of your hand, that represents a half an hour of movement for the sun in the sky. Okay. So if it's getting towards the end of the day and you're wondering how much time you have until sunset, just count how many hand widths between the sun and the horizon and, and that'll give you sunset. Yeah. And again, one should never look directly at the sun. So yes, yes. Approximate measures. Approximate. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. And by finding the, uh, by finding the North star and, and the North star not, not being a moving uh, target, like once you know where it is from your observing location, you cannot always get oriented. And then you can actually watch as the uh, big dipper sort of travels around that North star from season to season and, night to night for example in, in the spring now we have the big dipper um high up overhead 
and it's pointing down towards Polaris. Uh, once we get into summer, it will be sort of swooping down and the bull will be sort of pointing down towards the horizon. As we get into autumn, uh, the Big Dipper will sort of be just skirting the uh, the northern horizon. And then once we get into winter, it starts rising up uh, bull first uh, into the nighttime sky. So you can kind of get, get a feeling. And by knowing where that Big Dipper is and in relation to some other stars, because we know where the Big Dipper uh, is generally from night to night, depending on the season now, um, you're going to be able to find the North Star by using the Big Dipper and going out from the bowl three fist lengths. And then you can actually arc from the handle of the Big Dipper down to Boots and you can go down from, from the bowl to Leo at this time of year and then sort of in between we have Virgo. Um, and you can kind of sort of use that uh, as your guide and sort of make your own own rules for finding some of the other uh, stars and constellations. Anything to add on that, Shane? One, one thing that I found helpful to, to learn some of these constellations as well as their locations in the sky is you can get these little planisphere things, you know, from various sources, you know, bookstores typically or, or astronomy stores. And uh, they're pretty easy to use once you figure them out. You just set the time and the date just by rotating a disc inside of this uh, planisphere thing. And it shows you what the night sky looks like on that time uh, of the year, wherever you are. And they're helpful just to locate constellations and, and understand what's going on up there. Yeah. Did you use one of those to kind of start learning the nighttime sky when you were learning? it? Absolutely. And I've got to be honest, I still use it sometimes. Really? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because there's some uh, lesser, no, well, like kind of the minor constellations that I just don't spend a lot of time with. Um, sometimes I find it helpful. Yeah, I honestly, I never did. The first time I ever used one was when we started like giving the mode. Um, for our public outreach events as, as like those uh, cardboard star finders. Oh yeah. That was the first time I ever really held one in my hands. I'd sort of heard of them before, but it was one of those things where, you know, I, I'd, I'd heard of them and that, but I'd already been learning the stars and that for so long that I kind of knew like most of the constellations and that, and like when they were up and everything, by the time I really found out what a, what a planisphere was, cause um, you know, although I, I did learn in my late teens, and bought some books and that I uh, I'd kind of been tinkering around with it since I was like seven or eight or something like that and sort of knew where you know uh, Orion and Canis Major and the Big Dipper and you know many of those constellations were more or less and kind of had had filled in a lot of gaps once I started really kind of buckling down and reading about it and then kind of went uh, when I started reading about these planispheres I was like well I kind of more or less, I'm pretty comfortable with all these constellations already. I'll just kind of, kind of skip that as an accessory. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, again, your mileage may vary. Um, some people, uh, it, it, you know, might help you out. So consider yeah. that if you're new to the night sky. You know what I used, I'll tell you what I used instead is, uh, like I said, because, um, well, and I had a bit of a, a bit of a jump because where I was, there was a lot of very, it, older and advanced amateur astronomers to say the least and um, and so I was able to kind of go out and you know I would learn a lot from them and and uh, you know one thing I ended up getting instead of something like that was I bought one of these Messier cards these laminated Messier cards with all it has all the constellations um, and I kind of knew which constellations would be up at different times of the year and I knew many of the constellations but I would refer to that and then of course it has all the Messier objects marked on it so I was um, both looking at that, knowing what was up, and then finding all these these messy objects um, 
you know, just just for fun at that point, because uh, I'd seen most of them all already before I before I really get uh, so dedicated to to doing astronomy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lots of resources out there for sure. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I mean that. I guess that would be one other thing, and I never really thought of that before. And do you have one of those Messier cards? I don't. No, no, I don't. I've got a few of them around here. Like I have so much so much stuff like every once in a while like magazines would like include them as an insert i'd buy an extra one and tuck it away and i never bothered getting them laminated but uh, uh i do have my laminated ones still of course it you know very quickly i i inadvertently like folded it between something or put a telescope on it so right it, it's in a little rough shape so i'm going to talk about kind of like a few of the directional points uh with astronomy so these points are, are more or less always, always the same. Um, when you go out under the nighttime sky and you look straight up, this is the zenith uh, point, no matter where you are. So if you're, if you're in middle of Canada, like we are, and you look right up, we say that's the zenith. If you go down to Florida, and I've been to Florida to do astronomy, and I look straight up, we also say that that is the zenith. So um, if we're out doing astronomy, whether we're, we're in the middle of Canada or um, you know, I'm one of the keys in Florida and we, and we see a satellite going through straight overhead. Um, and I say, Hey, I'm seeing satellite. And somebody would say, where is it? I'd say, well, it's going to pass the Zenith here in a few seconds. So just look there and everybody would know that I'm talking about the point, uh, straight up. Then we also have the, uh, celestial equator and the celestial equator is just earth's equator, uh, projected out onto the, uh, celestial sphere. Now, there's another point, and that is the ecliptic. And the ecliptic is a little bit hard to kind of wrap your head around, but it's the point uh, where the planets live. It's, well, it's not really a point. It's like this imaginary uh, circle that goes around the Earth. Um, often people will get the celestial equator uh, and, the, and the ecliptic confused, but the equator really is just the equator projected out, whereas the uh, ecliptic uh, is the path of the planets and of course where eclipses occur and the the ecliptic can uh, well it spends part of the time half the time above the equator and half the time below uh, and that's like you know in essence why we have like summer and winter and all all that kind of stuff this seasons because the sun rides along the the eclip or the uh, ecliptic as well you know giving us giving us those seasons and of course the whole thing rotates around the celestial pole and you kind of get a feel for that like I don't really think that much about the celestial equator when I do astronomy Shane I don't know about you <laughs> not a lot it's it's you know, when the planets are out, I, I kind of trace that out with my eye. You know, yeah. when there's two or three planets spread across the sky. It makes it a lot easier to visualize it. Yeah. And then again, it's just a, it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, in terms of, hey, that's the plane of the, you know, the galaxy where, or um, the, the solar system. where Yeah, the celestial, kind of uh, yeah, the, uh, the ecliptic, yeah, being that, being that plane and uh, seeing it rise and, and fall. And of course, that has to do with the, the tilt of the earth, but um, you know, the other point, and this point took me a long time to kind of learn, um, this is something I learned later, is the importance of the meridian. So the meridian is the point, uh, similar, well, it's, it's a line, and it has to do with the zenith and the anti-zenith point, which would be the uh, nadir, uh, which is the sort of, or, or, you know, the southern uh, spot, which would be straight below you. And if you draw a line between the point directly overhead and the point directly below you, um, 
you know, sort of cutting from north to south uh, and looking south, that would be the meridian. And the reason why the meridian is important is that this is the point uh, in the nighttime sky where objects will uh, be highest above the horizon and be uh, best viewed. And so sometimes, not always, but sometimes we'll have like a planet and uh, when the planet is at opposition, we're gonna wanna look at it uh, when it's uh, at or near uh, the meridian to get our best views. Of course, you often can't be picky and often, you know, maybe the dates around the, the opposition aren't, aren't that good. And so, um, you know, we do sort of observe around that, but, uh, but like, for example, in the summer, you know, the best time to view the Milky Way is uh, the end of uh, June into, into August when, uh, it's close to the uh, when it's close to the meridian, and this is one of those things that it's it's worth looking up and it's worth learning a little bit about because I've often found that uh, people do learn a little bit late, and then I go out and there's there's one observer who comes out with us that hasn't been observing as long, and and that individual sometimes pick um, you know uh, deep sky objects which are nowhere near the meridian, which which had been near the meridian. Uh, maybe uh, two or three months before, or, or we'll be at the meridian in, in a couple more months if we're looking at the orange or the morning sky as the sky is turning orange. And, uh, you know, I keep saying, well, don't look at that now. Like, look at, you know, whatever it is. So, for example, if we're going to at this time of year, they might be looking at, I don't know, like the Andromeda Nebula or something down in Canis uh, Major, which is really low on the horizon. Whereas I might be saying, well, you should be looking at the Virgo galaxy cluster because it's really high. It's near the, near the meridian these nights or something like that. So any comments on that, Shane? Yeah, yeah, just to distill that down, uh, anything you, you're looking at in the night sky, the higher up in the sky it is, the better. That's what you want to look at because you're looking through less atmosphere, Earth's atmosphere, which causes distortion. So we're always looking for things that are a little higher because that'll be the best view possible. Yeah, and that's a... Yeah, that's the whole point. I guess I should have mentioned that. So that's a good thing why I have you here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's nice and high. Um, so it's above the sort of murk and, and the denser part of the atmosphere. So you can you can see a little bit deeper on it. Um, yeah, and then you can also observe it for longer. So, you know, and, and that's the one thing I was thinking about maybe is that once it gets, once things get close to the horizon, if you're observing like, I don't know, like this is, we're getting towards the end of April now. If you go out in the, in the evening and start looking at something like M93, uh, which is an open cluster just below Cirrus um, in the constellation Canis Minor, Major, uh, then uh, it's, it's going to be a very short-lived uh, observation of that object as it gets down to the muck and disappears or goes over the horizon or what have you, um, versus if, if you're trying to hunt up something in uh, Virgo, uh, right now it's nice and high. Uh, you're kind of going to have like all the evening or most of the night to do that. And, uh, you know, you can kind of sort of take your time in that. So, but I do see, I do see some, uh, no, I don't want to say beginners because it, it's typically people a little bit more advanced than that. Uh, but people who are just uh, really getting into deep sky observing after maybe a few years of doing it, um, will sometimes still go for those sort of uh, lower objects. And there's so much to look at in the nighttime sky that there's no point in doing that. You're just, you're just making things extra difficult on yourself. And then you're, uh, you know, although I don't want to discourage anybody from, from doing any kind of astronomy, I think that it's, it's best to kind of try to have a, have a bit of a plan anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's, uh, you know, it's some effort to haul all of the gear out to a dark sky site and then set up and all of the, all of those factors mean, you know, maximize your time looking at the best things possible. 
Yeah. yeah. Sounds good. Anything else that you want to add to, uh, to this podcast, Shane? I think we're, we're pretty much at the point of wrap up. Yeah, no, I think that was a great overview of, you know, everything up in the sky uh, and, and the universe looking forward to and the universe. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it was good. I'm looking forward to the next one already. Good stuff. All right. Well, we'll talk to you next week, Shane. I'm just going to stop this. Thanks, Chris.